And away we go with lucky number 13 episode of the Principles of Performance podcast. My name is Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry, who's back in action after his much-needed vacation last week. And we're continuing our lucky streak with Lucky 13 here with, with getting a bunch of really great guests on uh, early on in, in the inception of the podcast with Mr. Kevin Carr. Uh, if you don't know Kevin, he's a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA. He's a strength coach employed at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning in Woburn, Massachusetts. Uh, he has a BS in kinesiology and minor in psychology from University uh, of Massachusetts at Amherst, as well as a licensed massage therapist. But you might also know him. He's the co-founder and educator, uh, lead educator for the certified functional uh, strength coach, as well as a co-founder and the head therapist at his Movement is Medicine, um, and also the owner of strengthcoach.com and MBSC TV. And it is our pleasure to welcome Kevin Carr. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And 13 is my lucky number. It's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm born on the 13th. So very fitting that I'm on the 13th episode. It is um, perfect. Everything's lining up. <laughs> All right. So let's get rolling here and find out a little bit about your background because it's 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 uh, very interesting. And, 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 and also I want to find out how you connected with Coach Boyle and, and kind of how you got to doing all the things that you're doing now with him. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've told the story a few times. Like I, um, like a lot of people who are in this field, I was into sports and, and lifting weights when I was in high school. Um, you know, I think it's a pretty common story that it starts with an injury. Um, I had a shoulder injury. I had to get a labor repair playing football um, in high school. I had a, actually really good experience with a physical therapist, and it led me to really have a passion for lifting weights as well um, early on. And like anybody at that age, I was just kind of a meathead. I was working at a Gold's gym really uh, for the benefit of having a free gym membership in Maynard, Massachusetts. And I met this guy who was a private contractor there. I had just got at 18, I just got my um, ACE personal training certification, like right after I turned 18. And um, I was just typical meathead. Like I would open up muscle and fitness and do, you know, whatever the workout was that Ronnie Coleman was doing that week. And that was my routine. But I saw this guy named Clark Evans that worked there. I, I always shout him out because he's the reason I'm, I got connected with Mike is I look over and he's doing single leg deadlifts and single leg squats and he's doing hang cleans and he's doing chin ups. And I mean, he's training like an athlete and I, I was doing nothing really like that at the time. And I said, Oh, what are you doing Clark? And he told me, he goes, I just did this mentorship with this guy, Mike Boyle. He's the strength and conditioning coach at Boston university. Um, we went to spend the week with him at his facility and at, at the school. And if this is something you're interested in, you should really look into it. And I had just enrolled in UMass for my freshman year of college, uh, for the kinesiology program. And I had no idea who Mike was. So I just blindly applied for the internship because he told me it was a good idea. Um, and so I was lucky that, I mean, I was interning there at 19 years old. Um, I kind of started, that was really my first exposure to strength and conditioning was when I walked into the doors at the old facility in Winchester and, uh, fast forward, uh, you know, now <laughs> 2022, I'm still there. And so I, I was very lucky to kind of run into some people earlier in my career who pointed me in the right direction. And I, I learned pretty early on that that was a place that I wanted to be. Awesome. That's very cool. Now yeah. between the, the, the background of kinesiology and then mixing the psychology and then being a massage therapist, you have a pretty wide ranging background. So Talk about, you know, the value of versatilities for, tra of tra for trainers and coaches and, and the, that balance that we, that we always try to um, work along with being a generalist, but also being a specialist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
if you're working in a setting that's similar to ours, uh, you know, where I'm seeing athletes, I'm seeing general population clients, I'm seeing injured people, I'm seeing healthy people, I'm seeing everybody over the course of the spectrum on the course of a daily basis, as many people in the fitness industry are, if they're in a privatized setting, um, working in a gym, then being a really good generalist, uh, is very helpful because you have, you're about a mile wide and a foot deep. So you can deal with, at least on the surface level, at just about anybody who comes through the door. Um, at, if you, if you start to narrow yourself into a specialty, that's great. If you're going to niche down either in a, uh, sports like team-based setting or into a certain community, but myself, I found it very helpful to, you know, have a generalized background, um, so that at least on the surface level, I can deal with most everyone who comes with the door and then hopefully steer them to the right people. Um, if we need to get some sort of intervention at the next level. And so, you know, having a background in strength and conditioning, having a background in soft tissue rehab, um, and, and, uh, you know, massage therapy, as well as a little bit of a psychology background, as you know, most of us in the training field are kind of part psychologist as well, uh, from session to session. Um, it's been kind of helpful for me to be able to kind of be, um, versatile, uh, in our day-to-day setting. Absolutely. I, I constantly refer to the David Epstein's book range and yeah. kind of talks about that same concept and, and steal Carrie's Kelly Surrett's line of being a savage generalist yeah. um, and, and being able to do that because the reality is most people in our field, unless you really are, like you said, you're the strength coach for football for Alabama. Mm-hmm. And those jobs aren't easy to come by and there aren't a lot of them. You're ha- you have to, even a strength coach at a, at a university, you have to work with all these different sports. You have to have somewhat of a, a generalist a- approach. Yeah. Yeah. And like I, the nice thing about, you know, my experience, especially early on at MBS is I got exposed to a lot of different things. And so what I say to young coaches when they come in for an internship or they're asking me what they should do when they got a college is I say, go find an internship or somewhere you can get practical experience where you can get a bunch of exposures to different things. Um, so you can one, understand what it is that you want to do, what is it that you're good at, and then hopefully get a little bit of experience in everything. And so if you're like young person listening to this and you're not really sure what to do, I would say, go try to go to a facility somewhere where you can get a lot of exposure to a lot of various different clients um, because it's going to jumpstart your career by, you know, a few years. If you, you know, spend, you know, three to six months working with someone who sees a little bit of everything coming through the door. Very cool. So, so Kevin, one of the things that I've noticed and and you and I have sort of, uh, you know, we have similar careers. We've, we've kind of grown up in the industry together, but one of the things that uh, I've noticed is that a lot of the best coaches are really good problem solvers and uh, they're really good at digging a little bit deeper to truly, to truly find sort of what is, uh, what is the origin of what's going on as opposed to just, you know, handing out their favorite exercises. Do you have a, a training approach or a systematic approach when it comes to exercise selection and designing programs? Yeah, I mean, similar to both of you, I've been strongly influenced by one mic, but then also functional movement systems um, at the base of pretty much everybody who, when they come in, especially at Movement as Medicine, is I use the SFMA as kind of my starting point, my broad spectrum to kind of look at movement with. And the beautiful things that like, you know, Gray and Lee have done with those systems since they help decision making. And I just, I hired some new staff members at Movement as Medicine just recently, and we've been spending the last few weeks going through uh, that's FMA, uh, top down patterns all the way through and, in, in helping us with our decision-making, uh, sequence. And, and I, what I've been stressing is that that's, what's so important is so 
we can rely on a system to help us better select exercises rather than what the traditional approach is in fitness, where it's often, hey, this is what I'm into right now, or this is what I saw on uh, social media this week, where you know you throw something up at the wall and see what sticks. But you have a system like that that helps you make reliable decisions. Uh, you can be more consistent in your approach. And that's really also has strongly influenced our approach at Certified Functional Strength Coach, having a system of checklists and progressions and regressions to make better exercise decisions. And so whenever we go and teach those courses, I really, one, I push functional movement systems as well as ours, uh, but tell people go and build your own system uh, so you can be really reliable in your approach. It's, it's funny because as, you know, when we're out teaching, everybody says, what's the best course if we're, I'm a new coach? And we always say certified functional strength coach. I'm like, that's the next thing that you should take because um, I've always felt that it's, it's one of the best um, all around sort of, um, entry level courses for, for young coaches to get exposed to really, really good training. And, uh, I always tell people that's the first place to go. Cause everyone's like, Oh, you're a kettlebell guy. Should I go, you know, take my SFG one? I'm like, that's not a bad thing, but you got to learn some other stuff before you just try to be a kettlebell guy. So, um, that, that's refreshing to hear. So, so what you're saying is you just don't watch people warm up and make decisions, huh? <laughs> no, there's actually a thought process, <laughs> believe it or not, and how we build a program. And, and that, you know, that's really the biggest issue that we have in fitness is uh reliable systems and decision making um and i think you know maybe in, in a bubble that we're in people might not think that but if you travel around and see how most, most places operate um that is actually the problem is like hey this is what we're going to do today um but I, I can't overstate the value of having a system uh to take personal error out of the uh decision making process <laughs> No, that's, that's what drove us to kind of create our course, but I'm going to circle back to decision-making again. And I, I, this has been on, this is bullet points on the list here to cover. And this is the one I've been itching to get to, mm -hmm. um, just because it's, it's been a hot topic. So when you talk about decision-making, one of the biggest decision-making factors is risk versus reward. And, um, I know there was a, a big firestorm. I know, I know, uh, you know, Mike loves to stir things up on, on Twitter. He's got a whole new thing going now that that's, that's, that's surpassed this, but a couple of weeks ago, months ago, maybe even, um, there was a whole argument about orthopedic costs. And what was funny is, you know, when we created our course, I have a whole slide and section that I talk about the different costs of training, like everything we do, there's a metabolic cost, there's a, there's a chronological cost, there's, there's, there's a physiological, psychological, right? And then I just had one thing is structural cost. Um, then Mike comes out with his, his tweet talking about orthopedic costs of exercise, and it creates a firestorm of, of people debating on both sides. And I honestly don't understand the other side. I just don't. And, I, and I've offered, I actually spoke at the, at the uh, Northeast ACSM conference yesterday. And I said, if anybody can come up with good arguments on the other side, I'll buy a beer because I want to hear them. So yeah. <laughs> I want to get your insight on this because you're kind of in the trenches there, Mike, yeah. of the whole orthopedic cost thing and kind of like, I don't understand the argument about it, but it, it's funny. This was something that I didn't think was going to be controversial at all because it's something that we've talked about at staff meetings ad nauseum prior to it kind of being a Twitter hot topic. And because I don't think it's really controversial to say that like, hey, when, when, when there's people who might have limited access to joint range of motion, history of injury, stress outside of their day-to-day -day, uh, training that affects how they train, that there might be some sort of effect on the cost of doing business. Um, as I know, Charlie Weingroff has, has coined that term. 
um, when it comes to exercise, right? There, it might be harder for some people to access positions. It might be harder for some people to recover from certain stressors due to all the other factors. That seems pretty uh, cut and dry uh, to me, but there seems to be a contingent of, you know, and it, it, a lot of it is, you know, physical therapists or people who are from kind of a pain science background. And, and there's a lot of value from those people too. So um, that, that seem to think like, no, like everybody can recover from everything. And in a perfect world, that might be true. Biological systems can adapt, but th that's not the reality of working with people on a daily basis. Um, I, I don't think it, like, if you say like, Hey, if you go to an average gym, you tell everyone, Hey, we're either going to goblet squat or back squat. The majority of people are going to have more accessibility to do something like a goblet squat due to strength or mobility limitations or what have you. And that's really, I think, what Mike was uh, boiling it down to, no pun intended. Um, and so, you know, whenever you're a coach, you're always weighing risk versus reward. And when you run a business in a facility, especially with kids, you're really going to weigh risk versus reward because you're, you're taking responsibility for those people that come in there, especially if they're uh, youths. And so that's really the heart of our philosophy is like, hey, can we make a better training decision or a better exercise selection decision that can keep maybe one more person healthier and still get the same outcome? And that's really what it comes down to. And, and like the story I tell that, that is my kind of just explanation of it is I had a kid who I was working with and he was a, a offensive lineman. He was six, five and three forty, but not a real sharp three forty, if you know yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. So, uh, he was that kid who's, you know, his medial malleolus, his ankles are rubbing against the ground when he walked, his knees were knocked together, just a, a, a bunch of just gelatinous, you know, human just moving around. So he went to his, he's, he actually plays at a big 10 school right now. And, and when he went down for his college visit, his coach said, you know, you need to drop some pounds, you need to start running. And so thankfully he came to me first and I said, listen, the last thing you need to do is start running because yes, will you lose a few pounds? Will you have some metabolic, positive metabolic cost? Yes. But when you wear out your ankles, knees, hips, and I don't know what's going to go quite frankly, but mm -hmm. something's not going to go well at four times body weight. Every time you land on a jog, like it, like, I don't understand how that doesn't make total sense, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's, it's the problem that people always think in absolutes, like, um, like what, what someone might hear when they hear you say that is to say, Eric says never to run. Right. Yeah. You're like, no, but in this instance, it would not be the best choice uh, for this individual. We might be able to get the same or even a better outcome without the potential cost to his foot, his ankle, his knees, whatever might be the limiting factor for him by putting him on elliptical or having him do some strength based work uh, and working on his nutrition, all these other things that we could get the same outcome from. And so it's that absolutist uh, hearing that people have sometimes that, that leads us down that road. Well, the problem is too, is that, you know, when, when we're on social media, it's, it's when we, we give our opinion, people assume that, well, that's the only thing that we think. And yeah. we need to get a little bit more granular when it comes to the things that we're talking about, because I think if we sat down and we had a beer, we would probably, all of these individuals, <laughs> we'd probably agree on 90% of all those things, but yeah. that's not fun on social media, right? Like that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't get anybody in a tizzy that doesn't troll anybody. And, and let's be honest, like, everyone's drawn to the people like, you know, ripping on other people because it's just, it's pure entertainment. And that's what people are going for. They're not there to get an education. No. They're there for entertainment purposes because they love the troll. Exactly. And it's so funny too, because Mike was just saying this yesterday, because we had a bunch, believe it or not, we had a bunch of athletes front squatting in the gym 
uh, just yesterday, and Mike goes, oh, God, if, if the Twitter trolls could come in here now, this whole place might burn down uh, because they just assume that we never lift anything. Um, but we, we do. It's just a matter of, again, they take they take one clip or one tweet or one uh, caption and, and run with it when what we're doing is actually a lot more nuanced uh, than that. Absolutely. You actually do so, bilateral things, too? <laughs> who would have thought? They crazy. They, they just they gallop in a split squad everywhere. They they, they, they never they never square their feet up ever. Yeah. Um, you know, at Mike Boyle strength and conditioning, what you guys do. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous. So so you know, Kevin, you've been in the field for for a pretty long time. Uh, what are some of the things that have had the greatest impact on just changing the way that you think when it comes to strength and conditioning? Uh, you know, muscular therapy, etc. Yeah. Um, a few different things. Um, I could kind of think about some big kind of changing moments in my career where I, where I saw things kind of differ. One, um, uh, less of a reliance on volume. I remember when I was younger and I was more influenced by things like bodybuilding or whatever, I used to think you always had to do a ton of volume to get stronger. And then as I actually started to get stronger and get older and work with people, I realized uh, that, that you didn't need to do you know, 10 sets of something. You didn't need to do even five sets of something if uh, or higher volume if you're doing high quality work, right? And that's something too from listening to Pavel uh, when I remember started really reading and listening to him about how to actually get people strong. And when you're working with, and you said people with orthopedic cost ideas and your personal training clients, like yeah, you can get people really strong without hammering them with a ton of volume every week. And the same goes with our athletes that um, that we're seeing on a daily basis that also have all these other competing demands, like their competitive season or their practices and whatnot. And so I remember kind of really thinking about how changing our program, uh, you know, when, when I, when I thought of that and it really reflects in how we work with our athletes at MBSC. Um, and I guess more recently is really our approach to sprint training and uh, you know, American strength and conditioning is so influenced by traditional strength sports, right? Powerlifting, bodybuilding, strongman, and American football, mostly. Um, and so the strength is the majority of what you see when it comes to sports development. Not a lot of conditioning and not a lot of speed or power. And I remember a few years ago when we brought Tony Holler in, uh, if anyone's familiar with Tony Holler, uh, he's a high school sprint coach, uh, track and field coach, very successful high school track and field coach. And he doesn't really advocate lifting at all for his athletes. And when he came in and told us that at a staff meeting, you thought our whole staff was going to like rebel at this guy. Cause he's like, I don't really make them lift. Some of them lift, but I just make sure they run, you know, three, two to five full effort sprints, two or three days a week. And that's really it. His volume was very low, but his intensity and quality was very high. And this, once we changed our, sprinting to reflect kind of what he calls the feed the cat approach um uh, all our athletes got faster and became better sprinters um and because we dedicated a little bit more time towards high quality sprint work with recovery and a little bit less time towards hammering them with volume in the weight room our athletes felt better and they got faster so it's very much on the same vein as you know less volume more high quality high intensity work um and, and we've seen a huge payoff from that uh with our athletes yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the the big things that, you know, I've noticed over the years, definitely working hand in hand with Pavel, as you talk about the quality is, uh, you know, a lot of the times people think that when you train, you should be, you should just be destroyed by the end of the workout. And, um, you know, I always tell my athletes, especially when I'm working with my, my high level fighters, I'm like, 
You should leave today feeling ready to go do something else. You shouldn't feel like you need to go take a nap. There are going to be some days that we're going to train really, really hard, but that's, you know, once a week, but I want you to leave here feeling fresh and you're, you're not going to really feel like you did a whole hell of a lot, but you're just going to feel sharp. Yep. And that's what I want you to feel when you leave. And, and people, people don't get that. They don't, they, they assume that because they don't feel tired or exhausted or spent that nothing's happening, but they don't understand the true neurological adaptations when it comes to sprinting and, and truly lifting heavy. Yeah, I'd say the biggest misconception that we have in all of fitness and strength conditioning is that a good workout is signified by laying in a pile of sweat, being sore, being exhausted, whereas getting better, whether that means strength or power or endurance, often sometimes might mean high quality work where you walk out the door that day and say, eh, I feel pretty good. I feel like I did something. You might feel a little bit the next day, but you don't feel crushed. You know, and that's been the biggest thing for me that, that that's kind of opened my eyes and it continues to open my eyes over the last five to 10 years is a better appreciation of the autonomic nervous system and the impact that we're having on balancing that sympathetic and, and parasympathetic uh, stressors. And, and then within that, obviously you have all the recovery factors of, of sleep and, uh, stress and so forth. And then obviously breathing being a huge part of that kind of being the one hack that we have into there. So that's been one of the, the, the big things for me, um, that I've recognized in, in terms of what are things that I'm, that I really missed in those first five, 10 years of doing this. Um, tell me about how you kind of address, some of those outside factors that, that are not happening in the gym, but are really the magic that makes the, the seeds grow. Yeah. Well, well first the, the idea of coaching and thinking about respiration and breathing was such a game changer for us too. I remember early on um, when we went to a PRI course uh, very early and I talked to Mike about it, Mike's like, well, we breathe every day. Why do we have to think about breathing? And uh, that was really the thought process at the time. Um, but it was such a game changer from a therapy standpoint for me uh, as a therapist to be able to get people's tone. I always say it's like a dimmer switch on a light. They might come into you at an eight, a nine, a 10, and you're just taking them and turning it down a little bit, getting the resting tone down to the point where they can actually accept some stress or we can start to get them in positions where they're going to be better accept, accepting of load. Um, and so that was a big kind of light bulb moment for us as well. And it's been really incorporated into much of what we do. Um, the lifestyle management stuff is the hardest to deal with, right? Because you're, you're two or three hours maybe at best in that person's week. And so everything else outside of there is the stuff that needs to be managed. And so much of that relies on their willingness and their readiness to start to change those things. And I think it starts really with that conversation with them because typically they come to you because they're frustrated about how they feel, how they sleep, how they look, whatever it might be. And initially they just think, you know, Kevin, Eric, Mike, you guys will have the answer for me. The, what I do with you, these two, three, three hours a week will be the answer to fix this problem. And it will be a part of it, but our conversation about all the other things you do outside of that and what our action steps are going to be with that are really going to be the magic. And so when you can start to have that conversation with them about, yeah, Hey, we can lose 20 pounds or we can make your back and neck feel better. But Let's start to think about your sleep. Let's start to think about your support from your family for you making this lifestyle change. Cause sometimes you want to lose 20 pounds, but you know, if you don't have the support from your spouse or the people around you, that can be really difficult. Um, you know, how are we going to manage our, our daily stress between our job and our kids and all these other things that, that might affect it. And, 
you had some baby steps in that direction. That's why the changes uh, happen over years, typically, as opposed to, you know, the 90 the day weight loss thing that everyone markets isn't usually a realistic timeline for people to change their lifestyles. And so it's it's kind of baby steps in the right direction and building a relationship with these people so that they're willing to take your advice in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Now that's something that you said before actually is something that comes up in, in uh, our opening conversation with, with clients that I've been using for, for years is I always ask them and say, how do you know if I did my job? Like, how do you know you got a good workout? And what do you think the answer is? 99 at times out of a hundred is I sweat a lot. It was really hard and I was sore afterwards. And I say, Oh, that's perfect. Because guess what? I got a program you don't even have to pay for. You can just come to my house this weekend and my wife's going to give you a list of shit to do. And you're just going to, you know, mow my lawn and clean out the garage and do all that stuff. And I guarantee you'll be sweat, you'll be sore, your neck will be stiff. It'd be awesome. And they think I'm nuts, but that's the standard we've set in our industry. And so in terms of changing those standards, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of do a little, um, uh, a little visualization drill here with you and, and ask if, if I got to appoint you as the worldwide czar of exercise, right? And you could implement laws and standards, you know, globally in the fitness industry, what would be some of the first things you'd like to see put in place? That's a great question. I like that. Um, czar of the fitness industry is a good title. Um, so what I would start with is I, I would number one, make people make our coaches have to understand how to have a proper intake conversation like you just mentioned. Um, it's so important. And the more I've gotten and grown up in my career and worked with more people in pain or people who are struggling with, you know, whatever it is that they come to us with weight loss, whatever it might be. Um, I've gotten better and started to prioritize my ability to have an initial conversation. And I think so often trainers are so eager um, to show someone how they can help them. Like they're actually eager to help someone, but they don't sit and listen to the person who's in front of them in the first place. Um, I think it was, uh, there was this research study that they said the average like physical therapist interrupts their client every 12 seconds, um, on an intake, um, learn to shut up and listen and ask good open-ended questions. So I would make that a standard because so often people walk in and they're like, Oh, Hey, um, thanks for coming in today. All right, let's go work out right now. Like it's literally a 30 second, um, intake. Whereas like I told our coaches, like, I don't care if you take almost the entire first session when someone comes in to have a conversation with them, because most of these people just want to be heard. They want to talk about themselves. They want to tell you what it is that really makes them tick, but they're intimidated. They're scared when they work and walk in MBSC the first time they see the jerseys, they see these athletes working out. They see all these people exercising. They just think like, Oh my God, I'm just going to exercise and do what this person tells me, but they never actually share what they're there for. And you never actually learn much about them. Being able to have a really good intake conversation can change that. So that would probably be one. And then number two, kind of going back to what we talked about before, um, I would actually have people make sure they have a system, write down your philosophy and your belief system. It's very powerful to do. It's very difficult to do. Um, but it, taking the time to actually write down what you believe and write down a system keeps you honest and then has, gives you a system to work off so you can be reliable. Like the, when we made CFSC, we sat down, Brendan, Mike, Kevin Larrabee and myself and said, this is what we want to build based on Mike's years of experience, our day-to-day -day coaching experience. And then we've continued to refine that um, every single day. And that really guides our day-to-day -day thought process. And it 
it has some, we can stand by something we believe in. I think it's very hard sometimes if you go up to a coach and a manager and say, tell me about what you believe, what's your philosophy. They might have a hard time actually answering that um, because a lot of people haven't taken the time to write it down. It's, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people would just assume that you were going to say, I don't want people to do this and I want people to do this. But the two main points are have a system and be really good at communicating. And, and I think whether you're a, you know, a, a personal trainer, you do group, you're a clinician. Those are two things that everybody can benefit from. And it's not sexy, but it sets the tone for the, the, the sets and the reps and all the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I'll never tell people when I go to teach a CFSE course, I say, I'm not here to tell you what your system is. I'm going to show you how we have a systems-based approach to thinking. I'm going to show you how we coach based on our clients, our setting, our equipment, our demographic, because those are the things that really dictate how you look at training. Um, and then I want you to go hopefully take a good chunk of this and maybe you can apply it to where you are, but then there's obviously going to be changes and that's, what's going to make you a good coach. I, you can't judge someone based just on their exercise selection until you walk into their door and see, okay, that's why they do this. Right. And that's well, the big picture. I, I always say if I had that position that I was at czar of exercise that I would basically just go around the world. I'd walk into facilities and in, in, in gyms and I'd walk up to you when you're training or treating somebody and say, one question. Why are you doing that? Yeah. And and I don't even, I don't might not even care if your answer is right, but you better have an answer. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of that answer is, well, it looked like you said, it looked cool on YouTube or I saw the guy across the gym doing it. Or, um, you know, I, if you don't really have a why, and if you don't have a why, then, then you're just randomly doing exercise entertainment as, as Greg Cook says. And, and if you're going to do that, I can get that for free on my phone, right? I yeah. can go, I can go from YouTube and look up exercise or Instagram and exercise for free. Why am I paying you for this hour? It's the why is what we're paying you for. Yeah. We always say at the gym, we have the window test and we say, imagine that all the walls here are glass and the people that you look up to um, in this industry, the people that you, that you learn from the people you want to impress are all watching you coach. And think like, okay, I need to coach in a way and build a program in a way that I would be proud of if other people were watching me do what I do. And I think if you use that as your test, and then if you also just think about the people around you that you work with every day, I think about Mike, I think about my coworkers, I think about like every time I go on the floor, I want to have a product in a service that I can be proud of. So if someone like you came up to me and said, why are you doing this? Or why are you coaching like that? I could tell you, um, and I could be proud of and believe in what my answer is. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that is absolutely huge. And I think a lot of people need to, to think that way as well. I always say, think of, I always use the example of pretend you have the ultimate job interview with you. You're working for the perfect place and you're making all the money in the world. How would you perform and what would you do? That's what you should try to do every day. And obviously it's, you know, it's, it's a, a little bit of an exaggerated example, but it gets the point across. But so we're going to switch gears a little bit. So uh, I know you get to travel all over the world. I see you in like Dubai. I see you in like Ireland. You're always got a beer in your hand, which is a, I'm totally <laughs> jealous, by the way. But so what are some of the things that you've noticed culturally that carry over in the fitness world from country to the next? And um, uh, what, what have you seen in other countries and other cultures that we could benefit from here in the U.S.? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So I kind of touched on earlier is like, it's very obvious when you travel outside of the United States how strongly we are influenced by American football strength and conditioning and how strongly we're influenced by bodybuilding and powerlifting. When you go to Europe, especially, they're much more influenced by sports like soccer. 
Um, they're much more influenced by technology. Um, they tend to be, in my experience, further ahead than us as far as incorporating uh, data, uh, sports science, um, and not less necessarily thinking that everything lives and dies in the weight room. Um, when I was just teaching in uh, Croatia, and this is very true of Eastern European countries um, in general, um, they're very much more in tune with nervous system readiness. Like we said, autonomics, um, they're more in tune with, um, you know, the impact of, uh, things like speed work or recovery uh, as it is for the athlete. Now they're much less, uh, focused on the development of the everyday general population client. I find when I try go to teach courses in Europe, a huge amount of the people I work with are sport coaches even teaching a CFSC level one course, which is general uh, kind of focused towards the general practitioner. Whereas here much more, there's many more exercise enthusiasts uh, who are personal trainers, people who are your typical kind of fitness person you see on Instagram. Whereas over in Europe, you see much more kind of sport influenced approach to training, even with the general population. Um, and that's something I think we could learn from. Again, it, it helps us think um, outside of just, putting as much weight on the bar sometimes in how to develop the person as a whole. And, and those are the, definitely a line drawn when I, you cross the pond over there and, and see how they think about training. It's a little bit different. It's interesting you say that. Cause I have some colleagues that I've uh, kept in touch with who are over in Europe now. And, and they said the, the, the very same thing is that the general population is, is not going to gyms and getting personal trainers for the most part. It's no. mostly a meathead thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have a friend in Portugal who's a, a fellow educator and he said, you know, it's very different here. He said, we just, we walk everywhere. We're, we're active. We do a lot of things and we just want to be active enough that we can drink wine at night. Right. Yeah, and exactly. so it's a very different thought process of our go, 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 you know, uh, mentality here in the States where the exercise gets put into that, where I have to compact this, incredibly intense hit workout into my one hour of activity. And then I forget about activity the rest of my day. Yeah. It seems like whenever I'm over there, these people are walking to get places, they're biking to get places or they play recreational sports. Um, well, you know, you see much less, like maybe you see some people in their twenties when they first get out of college playing in a rec league, but very rarely once people get older, do you see them have like recreational time for themselves in America? Whereas over there, it seems much, much more common um, because it's a lifestyle thing, as opposed to, you said, a compressed delivery of exercise within a few hours per week. And, and even, I think you see it in our physical education. Um, you know, this, this, this guy I'm friends with, he says, you know, um, my son's getting dropped off today. He went surfing and that wasn't something that he paid for a special lesson or anything. That was part of school. Like a van pick him up. Wow. They went surfing. He said, my son's learned horseback riding. He said, and this is a guy who came from Manhattan. He said, yeah, I wasn't getting that in Manhattan. <laughs> and so what they oh. do there is much more of a physical lifestyle that starts in, in there is part of their school system and what they do as opposed to us where it's, it's all game and sport based approach. And which is going to obviously be more drawn towards the athletes and the, the kids who, who don't need it, get it. And the kids who really need it don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But one of the more encouraging things that I've actually seen at our gym in the last few years is we've had more and more kids enroll in our middle school groups who are not competitive athletes. Um, and that's one of the best things that I've seen. These kids come through the door. They don't play hockey. They don't play baseball. They don't play basketball. They don't play football. They don't really, they don't participate in sports, but their parents have been sending them to train with us two or three days a week. And 
that's pretty rare, but it's something I've seen a little bit more of, which is a little bit encouraging. It's something that I'm trying to think, you know, how can we market to that more? Because as we know, in America, the funding for things like um, recreation or thing, the, our gym classes or physical activity in schools is getting cut. You're seeing less and less of it um, than, you know, generations before. So the importance for them, you know, to have basic movement literacy or just exercise and physical activity in their day is, is the demand is going up in my mind. Now that also translates to, we also have way more kids playing sports and way less athletes. Yes. Right. When you talk about yeah. that long-term athletic development, you have kids who play 150 games of baseball a year, but can't, can't skip, can't run, can't jump, can't do the most simple things. It's actually, it's unbelievable. I remember like I was a multi-sport. I played three sports all through high school, right? In, in the time since I went to high school to the time now, I see less and less of that. And the, the, I've seen the growth of club sports and privatized sporting clubs explode. And maybe there was some of that when I was younger or I was blind to it. But it seems like every kid now is a year-round athlete. You know, like I have uh, some girls now that are softball players that are, they have softball now, they have softball in the spring, they have softball in the, in the summer. And I'm like, do you have an off season? Like it, they, they all play more games than kids in college, baseball players pitching more innings than professional pitch, pitchers, hockey players playing more games all year than guys in the NHL. It's so backwards to me, but it's the infiltration of money and uh, the privatization of, of youth sports is just, uh, it's, it's insane. And it, it's these parents that think they have to keep up with the Joneses always and put their kid in every camp and every showcase in every club team. When in reality, like you said, you're, you're, you're making less athletes in, in the long run. You know, what is, as someone, you know, my, my oldest son just started playing club lacrosse, but he's still out outside playing basketball, playing Frisbee. Um, he still wants to do other sports, but you know, it, and it's hard because I look at him, he's, he's 11 years old. He's kind of middle of the pack. He's not the worst. He's not the best, but you know, as a parent, uh, you want to see your kids successful at every single age, right? You want to yeah. give the opportunity to be the best player. And it is hard. Is and, and I know better. Like, I know better, right? But it, it still is hard as a parent to not want to be like, we need to do more lacrosse, right? But I also know that, like, no one gives a damn about the jamboree that we're playing in tomorrow. Yeah. Like, in 10 years down the road, we're not going to be like, what was the deciding factor in your athletic development? He's going to be like, oh, remember when I played, uh, you know, that jamboree in, <laughs> you know, 2002 when it was pouring out? But, but it's hard because we want the initial feedback and we want the initial reward of winning and scoring goals because we're, we're so short-sighted in the success of our kids that we forget, we truly forget about the long-term athletic development component. And uh, we were had a really good discussion with Greg Rose and he was talking about this as well is that, you know, we're, we're just really missing the boat, but I, I just wish more parents and coaches, to be honest, were educated on the true athletic development model because it's really good in Canada. They have an awesome model. Australia, yep. it's great. The U S it absolutely sucks. Yep. And it's, and it's really, it's so unfortunate because we have the, the, the facilities, we have the people like we, we could do this, but it's just so driven by immediate reward, competition and money. Yep. And I, my friend Mike echoed the same thing with his kids. Like he's always been a long-term athletic development advocate. And he has, uh, you know, a daughter who's now playing professional hockey, who I've seen go from being in middle school all the way through. And, um, you know, he did his best to kind of, until she got up to that, you know, more elite level um, in high school to start to narrow into things like hockey to try to keep it varied. But he said, it's hard. As you apparently say, like, I want my kid to be the best at everything. And how do I balance that 
with what I think might be best for them long-term is difficult, especially when you're surrounded by peers who might be doing something different. And you're right. I think there is an overhaul needed um, in our American sports development model. It's just a matter of how do we do it? And then how do we, in the context that we currently have, um, make the best decisions to, to support them, whether it's with training or with um, other sports or whatever it might be. Yeah, we also had Lee Taft on a couple of weeks ago, and he's been on the soapbox for for changing this. And he's it was just awesome. He's something somebody who's very very passionate about it. And has some really cool ideas of of how we change the model of you know. And I went through it with two boys playing baseball. Of you know, we drive two hours, stay in a hotel to go play a team that we could have played down the street, um, <laughs> uh, and 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 saved ourselves a couple hundred dollars. But let's let's go back and and go back to the the. Uh, some of the education that you're doing around the world and, and, you know, we're coming out the other side of this pandemic and, you know, it went from, and, and being all of us as educators, we went from being in, in uh, rooms where we can interface with people and meet people and create connection to where we were talking into webcams and, and teleprompters. Mm -hmm. And then now we're gradually starting to get back out there. So, um, kind of tell me where you see the next year, two years, five years going in terms of trainers and education and, and what some of the trends are that you've seen. Yeah. I mean, it, I'll tell you, it's been unbelievable to be back teaching in-person courses again. <laughs> it's so much more enjoyable uh, than, te than teaching on zoom. However, I do think you're going to see more hybrid education models, which I think can be good. Um, like, whereas, you know, idea where maybe you teach an online workshop and you teach, you have some online delivery as well as an adjunct in-person course that goes with it. So you can reach more people, allow more flexibility. I think we can use technology to our advantage. Um, but so much of what we do in fitness, I think will always rely on interpersonal skills and those are harder to develop through a computer or through a camera. And so, you know, we've, we offered like, thankfully this was just good timing. We launched an online component to certified functional strength coach in January of 2020. <laughs> um, just very dumb luck on timing, um, which was very helpful for us because we were able to continue running the business and, and reaching people and educating um, throughout that. And we added a zoom component, um, a live zoom component, because we didn't want it to just be recorded content that you consumed and never talked with someone in person. And so we went as far as to actually build a Zoom studio at our gym. We had a space that we had been renting to a physical therapist who during COVID, she shut her business down and we had perform better, come in, lay down turf, put in a rack, put in flooring, bring in a bunch of equipment. And we have professional camera set up and lights and audio. And we can actually teach live Zoom courses out of there. Um, and we do Zoom workouts for our, our uh, clients at the gym as well out of there. And that's been a great adjunct for us to be able to reach some people where we might not be able to get to, um, whether it's a travel restriction during COVID or if it's just a matter of cost for some people. Obviously, flying uh, myself over there to teach a course is much more expensive than them paying to be able to do it through Zoom. So it's allowed us to have more access, which is amazing. Um, but I always tell people if there's an opportunity to do things in person, uh, I think you always just get more out of that experience. And I, I don't think that that's going to go anywhere. I remember early in the pandemic, there were people saying, oh, it's the death of personal training or the depth of in-person fitness. And uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen. People crave personal interaction. They crave to be part of a tribe and with a group of people. But technology can be in our advantage to reach more people who might not economically be able to do it or from just a space and distance problem can't, can't get to you in person. Now, um, 
you know, going off of that, uh, you know, one of the things that Mike and you bring it actually up when we, we teach our course is that I think one of the things that also gets lost that you that you don't get virtually or, or online is some of the, the best experience or connections that I've made are people that were sitting next to me at a course, yeah. right? People that were in my that were in my uh, practical group that I got to work back and forth with, um, that ended up becoming colleagues and friends or connections that ended up leading to other things that who knew that I would have would have had that before I showed up. I just showed up, sat next to somebody, and lucked out, and then ended up becoming that that connection. So I think that's a that's a pretty big thing. Another question, and and I know Mike, I talked with you about it, and and Kevin, you were both up at Perform Better um, a couple of weeks ago and speaking, and and Greg Rose said this as well. The dynamics of who's there is very different. Obviously, we we fortunately lost a lot of people in our industry who couldn't survive through the pandemic, um, and there's a lot of fresh faces in there, um, and so. Tell me what you've seen as far as that dynamic change uh, um, in in what in who you've been teaching to. Yeah, I mean it's actually kind of unbelievable when we went to perform better over the summer. I think Chris Poirier told me something that like over eighty percent of the people there were first timers, huh. and I I thought wow that's unbelievable. Um, it also speaks to an opportunity um, to educate more people, newcomers to the industry, to help bring that baseline education up. Uh, for individuals. And you realize also that there's always going to be more people to teach the fundamentals to. Um, it's funny. When I was talking about CFSC with someone, they said, are you going to come out with like a level five, like a level <laughs> six? I'm like, I want more people to take level one <laughs> because in reality, in the industry, there's probably way more people than you realize who might never have really coached a push up the way that you think it should be coached, or they never really understood how to build a basic strength training program. They didn't get that basic practical education. And so when I heard Chris say that, I thought those are more and more people that probably would benefit from basic entry level education to fitness. And um, you're right. It's, it's terrible. You did. We did lose a lot of people in this industry during COVID who, who said, I, hey, I can't take this anymore. But then it seems like we've also had a lot more people come in. Um, and, and the benefit of a place like, you know, perform better, any of these conferences is like you said, I've met more people who I have strong connections with sitting at like a conference like that, who have become business partners, friends, um, over the years than, than I could even count. Um, and that's how you network and build relationships. And those people in the room are the people that might, you know, motivate you or fuel you or to, to go and do the next thing. And so I think it's so important to still go to in-person courses, for that reason, because a lot, a lot of the benefit sometimes is over the beers after the course is over and you sit and talk to someone at the bar and you think I learned so much in these last few hours and I built a connection that I can build off. Like, a, I mean, how, I'm sure you guys, how did you guys initially meet was uh, maybe at a conference? FMS. Yeah. Through, say. FMS, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so with that, I love that the, 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 the way you look at this is a huge opportunity and, and this, was another conversation I was having with Mike was after he came back from perform better is that the dynamics of who's up on those stages is also changing. So mm-hmm. I think we came, I probably came into the industry a little bit earlier than you did. I'm going mm-hmm. on 24 years now and Mike's around 22. So we're, we're around the same time, but like it, when we first started and you went to one of those conferences, like Mike Boyle, Gray Cook, Vern Gambetta, um, Mike Clark, Juan Carlos Santana, Paul Check, those people were rock stars in our world, right? Mm-hmm. 
And this newer generation doesn't have that connection to them and they don't know them any more than they know us. Mm-hmm. And so we, the, we almost need to not just fill the, the, the void that was left uh, with the people who, the, the, the trainers who left at in, in the industry in the pandemic, we have to fill that void of who those next rock stars of our industry is going to be. And, and I definitely think you're going to be one of those and already are one of those. So, um, you know, kind of speak to that of how does that person transcend from being the person in the seat to the person on the stage? Cause I think there's a void there also. Yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity to become leaders. You realize like Mike is 63 years old. He always says this to me. Like he goes, I'm trying to pull the great disappearing act um, <laughs> at, at the gym where he, where it's like myself and Steve and Vinny and Dan and the guys who are running the gym along with myself um, to take over and become leaders in our place and in, in, at a place like perform better be, or in our industry as a whole kind of fill those gaps. And you said, there's all these people coming in who probably don't have a connection um, to some of these guys who had been there for so long. And there's an opportunity for us to continue further and build off the things that they built, build off the education and the foundations that they built and, and become leaders and shape the way that this industry moves. And one thing I always tell people when they say like, Hey, how can I go and speak at a place like perform better or go speak at, you know, NSCA, whatever the conference might be. I said, well, first you should be someone who's in the stands. Like I, I sat in those seats at the Providence Convention Center every year since 2008. And so it's it's one of those things that you build a community, you build a connection with the people there, you put yourself in the right rooms to educate yourself. And then every time you have an opportunity to go speak and to go educate, whether it's you know with the people who are in your gym, your staff, um, go and do that and sharpen your sword, get a little bit better at that. And all of a sudden you got a crowd of you know 400 people sitting there listening to you. Um, but you got to go put yourself as an opportunity to learn first. And before you know it, you might be up there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because, uh, I was, uh, at the you know, Providence perform better, you know, what we're up doing the Q and a, right. And I'm sitting next to gray and Charlie Weingroff and I'm like, one of these guys doesn't belong here right now. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's me. So, but, but it's interesting because you're right. You go and you say, same thing. I went to endless perform betters and, and when FMS was in new yeah. England, I'd, I'd go to every event. And I just learn and learn. And it's pretty cool when you get to the point where you're that guy, right? You started as that guy in the stands taking notes. And then eventually you're up being colleagues with these individuals and you're like, holy crap, like this is, it's pretty, it's pretty surreal in my opinion, because, um, you know, I, I never would have expected that for myself. And, and I know sort of, you know, a lot of these young coaches are, are, they have this opportunity that they don't even realize that they have when it comes to learning from others and, and just developing relationships and, uh, you know, trying to find a mentor. I think that's a huge part of it as well. But, um, you know, I think just putting yourself in a position to just be willing to learn from everyone and anyone, I think is one of the best things you can do to further your career. Yeah. And I, you know, I think sometimes people see where you're at, and, or, you know, where someone like Mike is at or, or gray or someone who's at the top of, of where their industry is. And they think like, how do I get there? But I'll tell you, like when I started at MBSC, I thought I was just going to be coaching high school kids. And I always say like, my why hasn't changed, but my how and my what has like at the beginning, I remember thinking like, I just want to spread the value of good training and physical activity to as many people as possible. And I thought that meant just coaching high school kids. And that was awesome. Then I started doing some personal training. So my what and my how changed a little bit more. Then I had an opportunity to help Mike with the mentorship group. So I kind of move into an education piece. Then I start to teach some of the interns, right? 
Then we start doing traveling mentorships where we went to people and that eventually became CFSC. So there's another step in that direction. My why, why I want to do this hasn't changed in all the years I've done this, but how I've delivered it now, teaching a CFSC, writing a book, traveling and teaching at conferences, that happens over a long period of time. I always tell the young staff that we have, and I said, a lot of the secret is the endurance to just keep doing it. (laughs) And like, I get motivated by Mike's story. Like Mike always tells me like, like he was working at the Bruins and working at BU and bartending for years to make ends meet, uh, putting out DVDs. Uh, and then over time he built a career that was profitable and successful and people, uh, don't see, you know, they always think overnight success when it's probably actually a 20 year effort to kind of get to your big break. Right. And, uh, it's, it's a lot of, it speaks to just kind of relentlessness and continuing to show up and, and educate yourself. And all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, Oh my God, I'm up on stage with these people who I looked up to for all these years. Yeah. Awesome. And, and, and I, I, I want to say one thing because, uh, you know, Kevin, I've, we've had our careers sort of in parallel for a while, but I, I gotta, I gotta give you some props because one of the things that I really value um, and that I learned from some really good speakers, especially Greg Rose and, and uh, Brett Jones and guys that have helped me is um, your, your public speaking ability and your ability to capture an audience and get information out there um, is one of the best I've ever seen. And, and I'm not just saying that to blow smoke. I've seen a lot of people speak in the way that you deliver, the way that you teach is one of the best. So I look at, I look at the way that people present a lot, a lot differently than others. Um, not to say that I can't value the information, but as someone that's been in the industry for a long time, you tend to look at things a little bit differently. And I just want to give you props because your your ability to speak to capture an audience is is simply one of the best I've seen. So I just want to say, dude, you're killing it with that, and uh, keep up that because it's you're you're you're. I'm just very impressed with your ability to go out there time and time again and deliver an awesome lecture. That means a lot to me, Mike. Thank you very much. Not a problem, man. You know, when it comes to speaking, there was something that always stuck it out in my head early on when I was just, I was the total geek in the front row that just, I was the one, as soon as, you know, you said, all right, we're done. Can I ask questions? I was the first guy up there and I just followed you like to your next to, to the bathroom. Like I was so annoying. Um, <laughs> and so I was always that guy. And I remember I was going through, um, I did two levels of, of checks internship. And to get ready for it, like I didn't want to just show up. I wanted to be the best student in the room. And so I hired Joe Dowdell was in New York City um, at the time. And he was a a level three or level four. And I said, I'm going to pay you. Just teach me how to get ready for this. And I remember I was there one day and I said, hey, I'm going over to the idea conference. And I said, why don't you speak at that thing? You should be speaking. And he said, because I don't have anything different to say that somebody's not already saying right now. And that really stuck with me. And it kind of pushed me back from my ambition to want to go get on a stage somewhere. Cause I kept thinking until I have something to say that somebody isn't already saying, then I got to get better at that. And I got to get a different angle. And some of that was through just time of, of seeing what, what's was getting missed in my own training as well as what was getting missed there. But I know that's also a, a little bit of a tender spot because of the latest Twitter debate of, you know, who's <laughs> stealing from who, right? Is that we're all standing on the show. Like I always make a joke when I teach, I said, all right, just by show of hands, how many ancient Greeks do we have in the room? All right, none. <laughs> do we have any 2000 year old yogis or more? All right, then we haven't invented shit here, right? So everything has been taken to some degree from someone. So like to continue to build what we're learning is, is not necessarily stealing, right? It's just 
that's we're paying it forward to pay kind of more honor to those people that were on stage that were our heroes 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah, we're all just, you know, we're we're it's we're just re- continuing to make the a better version of the wheel, right? Like every time, you know, a car gets built, they refine it a little bit, but it's the same idea, right? And it's not, they always say no idea is original. Um and and when you get okay with that and you realize what people really value is your perspective and your experience and the way you deliver it and and share your beliefs because right, none of us invented any of this, but your experiences working with your clients um, your own personal experiences, training, um, and how you've interpreted the things that you've learned and you've processed them is really what people value. And, and when you realize that you can learn from anybody also, like I learned from my clients, I learned from the coaches that we hire, um, who are new for us. If you sit and listen to them talk, you realize that like, okay, I can be an educator. Um, as long as you can share your perspective and, and you develop your ability to share that, then, then you could probably provide something valuable. There's a great book, uh, Austin Kleon wrote it. It's called Steal Like an Artist. He has a whole series and it's a, it, it talks about just this, is that, you know, every musical piece, you know, the Beatles stole from, uh, from the blues artists, that, you know, that came before them and then everybody else stole from the Beatles. And so it, it, it's a, um, it's an interesting conversation that's, that's, uh, that's out there about that. So uh, before we wrap up, uh, Mike, anything you want to add or any final thoughts on your end? No, I mean, you know, for the people that are listening, uh, you know, check out Kevin's work, um, check out the certified functional strength coach courses, uh, all the stuff that those guys do over there, um, are, are absolutely impacting the industry. And I highly recommend that you, uh, you go to learn from some of the best because those guys are doing it right in my opinion. And, um, you know, regardless of your background, there's always something to learn. And I think the, the content that those guys are putting out over there is, is top notch. And, um, you know, there's always an opportunity to get better. And I highly recommend anything that 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 crew puts out. Thank cool. you so, so much. Speaking of, the, of that kind of work, what's, what's new and exciting that you got coming uh, coming up down the down the pike? Oh, well, I mean, we have a ton of certification courses coming up all over the place. Um, so if you had to certifiedfsc.com and go over to our registration page, you can see kind of all the courses that we have planning all the way into 2023. I actually have a course coming out next week with uh, Muscle in Motion. If you're familiar with them, uh, they do a lot of work with like um, anatomy, uh, visuals and, and videos. And it's a functional training anatomy course that's going to accompany my book that came out with Mary-Kate Fight last year. I have a book with Human Kinetics called Functional Training Anatomy. And we designed a course uh, through CFSC to accompany that, um, and muscle and motion has done an unbelievable job, um, with me providing explanations and them providing the visuals, um, with the anatomy laid in next to me. Um, and so that's going to be coming out on the 18th. So next week, so keep an eye out for that. And, uh, yeah, that's really the big thing on the horizon. Cool. And what's the best place for, for, for people to find out more about your work and, and stay up to date on things, all things Kevin Carr? Um, at Movement is Medicine on Instagram is pretty much where I put all my training related content and at Certified FSC would be the two places to find me on social media. Awesome. And then last, but certainly not least question is we brought up beer multiple times and you're around the world. So where's the best? Oh, where's the best? Uh, probably Slovakia. I haven't been to Czechoslovakia, but I have been to Slovakia and they equally have a very strong beer culture there as well. Um, let's see, I, I won't leave my German friends hanging, but I really enjoyed my time uh, out drinking beers in Slovakia most recently. So I would say go check out some of those Eastern European countries. All right. We got to put that on the schedule, Mike. He's the That's beer it, guy road trip. in this group. Yes. 
All right. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate this, Kevin. This flew by. This has been awesome. Uh, Make sure you check out his work. uh, And thank you for listening. We will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.